Welcome, everybody, to the Tag Your It podcast. I am Ray Ray. I am David Van Bever. And I'm Joel Sedicate. Yes, you heard uh, another third name. Uh, we got Joel on here. He is not a part of the Tag Your It podcast, but hey, with the, today is an awesome day where we have two podcasts uh, available in one. And so it's really awesome. We got Joel, and we're going to talk about his podcast. We're going to talk about his ministry. We're going to talk about something he's bringing to the table today to uh, help you defend the faith um, the right way, or at least the more I uh, get the right way. We're just going to say right way, the faithful to the scripture way, which is the right way. And we're going to get into um, the text today. But before we get there, before we get there, you guys have seen every week I've been doing this at the beginning of the show. Um, it's a special time. We are going to have an Ascension Day rally. And I got to, again, uh, learn how to smoothly uh, make things happen on this uh, newfangled uh, Zoom thing that we're doing. But here is the uh, picture for all those in video land. We're having Ascension Day Crown Rights Rally, Ascension foretold, fulfilled forever. And there's still some details that are being worked out. Um, but as soon as I get those, those things will be available um, full force uh, as I market that anyway and get the uh, all the information out. But anyway, it's uh, Thursday, May 26, 6 p.m. at the Historic City Hall here in Springfield, Missouri. And it's a time together, pray, sing, and proclaim Jesus's lordship over our city. So again, Ascension Day has become very passe we get uh you know resurrection sunday is an awesome sunday and it should be um but the big deal is is there you know he did not stay here physically on earth and the ascension actually means something um for all of creation all of thrones and dominions uh in in and also the church um is underneath christ uh, and his uh, lordship and his authority and so uh we want to make sure to uh go out into our city. And I could only pray that other people catch on with this and maybe there's a bigger vision to have here. But anyway, it all starts this year here in Springfield, Missouri, Ascension Day Crown Rights Rally, Ascension foretold, fulfilled forever, Thursday, May 26, 6 p.m. Historic City Hall here in Springfield, Missouri, a time together, pray, sing, and proclaim Jesus's Lordship over the city. So with that said, let's get in to the podcast today. So Joel set a case. Uh, he gave me the wonderful, uh, or I guess, illustration for me to be able to do that. You know, Joel, set a case, pick it up, set it down, set a case down. So welcome to the Tag Your Podcast. How are you doing this evening, Joel? Doing awesome. Doing awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, you are. You know, this is awesome. So you, you reached out to us and um, you're a guy that I've seen your name uh, on Facebook anyway, just a part of a few groups. Uh, I've seen that you've done work. We just had not worked together yet and uh, come across come across together. So somehow you got to hold the tag your podcast. Cause I'm definitely not that active uh, in the Facebook groups and you got a hold of us. So thank you uh, for reaching out and thank you for all your hard work that we um, will display a little bit of tonight. So. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks guys. I, you know, I um, learned about your podcast, I don't know, a couple of years ago because I don't know how I found you, but I must've searched for presuppositional apologetics podcasts, something along those lines. And not surprisingly, there aren't a ton of them out there, but, uh, you know, the one that's got 
tag in the name transcendental argument for God, that's going to stand out. And so uh, props to you for naming it. Uh, and um, even yesterday I was telling my kids that I'm going on the tag your it podcast. My son, Jacob, who's 10 is like, that's a cool name. What does it mean? And so, uh, you know, so you, you're, you're hitting every demographic, the, the 38 year olds and the 10 year olds. Hey, so, that's uh, awesome. Well I like that. I like the, I like the, the, that age range. Let's uh, make it even more, but yeah. Well, yeah, that's awesome. We're, I guess we're the only game in town when it comes to the transcendental argument for God. Yeah. I get that all the time. Um, but we do have a double entendre going on because it's Dave and I, and we, it's kind of discussed that, you know, we kind of tag team, um, everything too. So there's kind of a double meaning, you know, double fulfillment. Uh, a little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, that's awesome. But you, uh, yourself, uh, you, you are a presuppositional dude. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you adopt the uh, same, uh, sort of, uh, jargon as we do, but I like to call it a covenantal apologetic because of, uh, what, uh, oh, um, Scott Oliphant yep, yeah. has, has done as well. So we are in good company um, on this episode anyway. And again, um, it's great to just know that it's not just us um, that are championing um, using the verbiage, I guess, that we do. Um, we, yeah. we like to make sure that, you know, everything that's out there is uh, useful and everything. So it sounds like you get into the transcendental argument yourself, but uh, you've brought something up really good. But uh, first, uh, let's just uh, introduce you to our audience. Um, who is Joel Setacase? Well, man, uh, so I'll tell you what, I'm a former pastor who used to defend my faith the total wrong way. And, uh, and then the Lord changed my attitude and my approach. And today I teach believers to articulate and share and defend the Christian message. So I'm happy to go into detail about that if you want, or we can jump in however you want to take it. Well, the next thing I kind of want to do before we jump into kind of the topic that we're going to be dealing with today, and I really appreciate the, uh, overview that you gave us. I'm looking forward to diving into that and kind of hearing you unpack some of this component because uh, I have written a doctoral paper on just the speeches and sermons in the book of Acts. And so actually we're jumping to even more important than that, the words of Jesus today, but help us out a little bit, because one thing that I was really impressed with after our discussion was the Think Institute. So if you don't mind, give us a little plug for the Think Institute. Tell us what you do. Uh, We want to direct people to you. This is obviously, God has called you from pastoral ministry as a preacher into training people to defend the faith. So tell us a little bit about your work, if you don't mind, at uh, Think Ministries. Okay. So the Think Institute- Institute, was, sorry. <laughs> no, all good. Um, the um, the Think Institute was born out of a desire that I had when I was a local church pastor. There, I was at a uh, multi-site church in the city of Chicago, and a couple of other pastors and I had this desire to start a teaching ministry that would work within the local church to teach believers uh, a biblical approach to worldview, evangelism, and apologetics. So how to articulate the, the faith, how to share the faith, and then how to defend the faith. And you know, anybody working in pastoral ministry, any pastor can tell you, there's not a lot of free time. There's not a lot of spare time beyond planning Sundays, sermon prep, preaching meetings, in-home visitations. And, um, you know, and then for those of us who had young kids at home, there's, you know, you're working 60 hours a week and you're trying to come up with extra time to start a separate teaching ministry. It just wasn't going to happen. So I did a couple of evangelism trainings and a couple and some apologetics training, 
but uh, just could not get this institute or this teaching ministry off the ground. So the last role that I had was I was the interim lead teacher at Park Community Church in the Forest Glen location of neighborhood of Chicago. Well, when that came to an end, um, we saw the opportunity. It was my wife's idea, as most of my good ideas are, um, to become support-raising missionaries. What we did then was we looked at a bunch of different organizations, and we, we said, where are we going to have the freedom to start a teaching ministry to help believers articulate, share, and defend the Christian message? So we finally landed on Crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, and we signed on as support-raising missionaries, as full-time missionaries. We launched the Think Institute in February of 2019. And, you know, one of the major apologetic questions that people face, that a Christian apologist face, is the problem of evil and the problem of suffering, which is very closely related to it. Well, God saw to it in his sovereignty that two weeks after we launched the Think Institute, my son, who had already been battling leukemia for three and a half years, went into heart failure. So we now spent the majority of 2019 in and out of the hospital, um, him primarily being in the hospital. And I got to see in real time what the Lord does when people pray and how the Lord sustains you when the floor seems to drop out and you have nothing to stand on other than the Lord, other than your faith. And uh, so I got to I got to witness that in real time. The Lord gave me uh, uh, just a, a real-world example, a real-world education. And all of this has factored into my own apologetics teaching. So today... I teach apologetics. I teach, um, we, I develop curriculum for homeschooling families. Uh, we do in-person teachings for men's ministries. We do, um, live in-person discussions where we call it a wall. We'll have a bunch of guys over to my place and we'll drink whiskey and smoke cigars and pipes and talk about philosophy and theology. And that the goal of that is to give guys an opportunity to articulate what they believe and to share it with those who don't yet believe. Yeah. Uh, in real time. Um, and then I have a podcast called Worldview Legacy, which is the podcast that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need. And bound up with all of this, this is not just an intellectual exercise for me. This is, you know, I've experienced the life change and the security that come from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And having a robust understanding of God's sovereignty and the truth of Scripture and the absolute certainty of the biblical worldview, again, it's not just intellectual. It has sustained me. Mm. And I'm not saying I was sustained by intellectualism alone or anything like that. Mm. But the Lord, the Holy Spirit used my knowledge in, uh, to, to sustain me, to, to, to lead my family through some very dark times. You know, we've been to the valley of the shadow of death and back, mm. and the Lord really is a good shepherd uh, mm. through all that. So, yeah, I've got a seminary education. I've got my MA in philosophy of religion. I've got pastoral ministry. I'm sort of an educator by trade, pastor by trade. But uh, for me, it's all about helping people know God and understand him better. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So uh, just, uh, it's uh, we, we don't have, uh, like we usually have, is a, a list of questions or whatever. But what I like to do, especially since we get uh, more apologetically, um, uh, I guess, specific folks anyway, what is your definition of apologetics? So apologetics is the discipline defending the truth of the Christian message. And I yeah. basically lifted that from John frame. Yeah, that's good. 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 We, we are, we are frame friendly. 
Oh man, <laughs> very much frame friendly. Awesome. I, yeah, you, I will have to send you a copy of the booklet that I've been working on regarding the cessation. Uh, I'm a cessationist, obviously, but specifically targeting uh, the prophecies regarding Donald Trump's reelection. And so mm. I do a critique of this and I'm mm. quoting frame all over the place. I'd love, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, actually. Uh, cool. It'd be really cool. But let's jump in real quick to uh, where we're going here today. So give us just an overview of when you are engaging people in the way that Jesus defended the faith, where is kind of your go-to passage and what is it that you are going to kind of show us from Jesus's defense of the faith? So that's a good question, Dave. And I'll tell you what really surprised me last year. I was preparing for an apologetics course that I was going to be teaching at a men's ministry at a local church. And I wanted to do it on the apologetic approach of Jesus and Paul, because, you know, as presuppositionalists, one of the things that we really enjoy about apologetics and believe about apologetics is that presuppositionalism is the most biblical approach. Mm -hmm. And so a big question that I had was, is this really the approach that Jesus himself used? And I did not know how to answer that question. Mm. And I, I had an inkling that it was, you know, you could make a case that this is how Paul argued. And I knew that because when I was reading Bonson years ago, Greg Bonson, uh, one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century, yeah, you know, he analyzes, uh, maybe it's in his book, Always Ready, but he analyzes Acts 17 and yeah. he breaks it down. And at the time I was very new to presup, so I didn't really follow him at that time, but I was like, but I know the people make that case, but okay. So that's Paul. What about the Lord Jesus? Is this really how Jesus argued? So I start doing research and I'm looking for articles online. How did Jesus argue? How did Jesus practice apologetics? And it was a lot of evidentialists saying, you know, Jesus uses evidence and Jesus uses reason and, and all these different things. And I said, well, I'm looking at the examples that they're giving and I'm like, oh, this isn't really like typical evidentialist apologetics. I mean, this isn't really how people, yeah, he's using evidence, but there's something else going on here. So I decided I was going to do a study of the apologetic encounters of Jesus for this class that I was going to teach. And man, I was so pleasantly surprised as I'm exegeting these passages, because what I realized was Jesus argued presuppositionally. Yeah. Now, he didn't give the transcendental argument. You know, he didn't go to you know philosophical concepts of logic and the preconditions for science and morality, but he absolutely used a a presuppositional method. So once I saw this, I couldn't unsee it. And I started, I'm like, okay, he does it here in Matthew. Let's see if he does it in the next passage. Let's see if he does it in Mark. Let's see if he does it in Luke. And sure enough, man, I could not find an example of Jesus engaging apologetically, defending the truth that wasn't presuppositional in some way. Again, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. So the passage that I wanted to share with you guys is Matthew 12. It's not the first time he does it in scripture, but I think it's one of the, the clearest times. It's Matthew 12, 22 through 30. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, so uh, just uh, before we get into there, um, you know, so we, we've talked about Paul and Acts 17 on our show before. Um, we've talked about uh, Jason Lyle's ultimate proof of creation, going through the AIP test, uh, arbitrariness and consistency, and uh, looking for those preconditions. So that's whenever you get in down to the nitty gritty of methodology and everything. But uh, one thing that we need to understand is the difference for anybody that's new to this podcast, new to presuppositionalism, covenantal apologetics, um, is the fact 
fact that we are uh, theology first. Understand that that's kind of a sticky point because like, how can you do that? Because you bring your own things to the party and it's like, we've answered that question. Yes, you do. You're going to bring your sinful self um, before the scriptures. And then the scriptures are going to read you instead of you just reading it. And then it's going to show you where you're wrong and you're going to have to submit to its authority therefore right so we start with the a lot with a theology first then we find out like we have to have an apologetical method that meets these criteria on how we uh, approach people um how, what who do we think they are who do we think we are who is jesus who is god and that's all have to that all has to come first um uh, before we get into that so we can't like uh you know, this is like, say, even on down to the day, we can't like utilize critical race theory as an analytical tool because it comes out of a different worldview than the Christian worldview. So we can't apply lenses from out here onto the scripture. That's that would be Roman Catholic. That would be Thomas Aquinas. You know, we are we are not there. No, we 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 make things up. And then we bring it to scripture and go, but we can't do that because scripture right here states this, which is a part of our system. So now we have to remove this from our system and adopt this. So again, it's about, it's about that. So, you know, we, again, we talked about Paul, we've talked about that. Um, but you know, Paul says himself, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So in Acts 17, when Paul's doing his thing and we can see presuppositional apologetics in motion, it's anachronistic. Yes, but we see it. Um, you're saying that in this passage, um, so we're, again, we're talking about, uh, I've got to find my notes. You're talking about Matthew 12, 22 through 30 here. You're, you're, you're saying your, your claim is that Jesus, um, is a, is a presuppositional dude here. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, walk us yeah. through it, man. Okay. So before I unpack what Jesus is doing here. Let me, let me just say, let me, I want to skip to the end if I can, and just sort of give you a, um, a preview of where I, where I think this is going to be rubber meets the road. So the, the most common objection, let me say this one of, yeah, it's probably the most common objection that I get when I'm doing like an apologetics AMA, which I, I do from time to time where people will, uh, you know, non-Christians will, will hop on and ask me a bunch of questions. I do this on Discord, um, and I'll turn those into podcast episodes. But like the number one uh, question that I will get nowadays is something along the lines of, why is God so anti-LGBT? This is going to seem like it's coming out of left field. And yes, I'm going to talk about the presuppositional approach of Jesus. But there's this, um, people go right there. Why does God hate gay people? What do you think of uh, LGBTQIA, et cetera, plus? So this is an objection that, if you haven't gotten it yet, listener, you're going to get, uh, it's a major sticking point for a lot of people. And I'm not saying it's the only thing keeping people from Christian faith. I mean, there's other issues at work. There's heart issues, obviously there's a lot of truth suppression that happens. Mm -hmm. But what, what I found is that by analyzing this particular passage in which Jesus does not touch on homosexuality or anything else in, in that whole alphabet spectrum, um, you can use what Jesus says here to answer that question. So I hope that kind of piques people's interest as they're listening and they're going, how do you answer that question? Why is God so blank, uh, LGBTQIA, et cetera. There's a lot of presuppositions there, but how do you answer? And, and literally earlier today, I was teaching my apologetics class, which I teach to eighth through 12th graders at a local homeschool co-op. I'm doing that as I'm developing, I'm developing an apologetics curriculum and I'm teaching it in real time. 
And my students told me, they're like, yeah, that is the objection right now. That is the objection that people are asking. And I, I honestly, I think that they're right. So my experience and their experience really uh, corroborates that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to interject here. So this is whenever we talk about, um, like we've talked about before, um, but it's also something that James White brings out, um, is your hermeneutic on this issue right over here, the same sort of hermeneutic that you're going to discuss this issue and that issue and that issue. And so what he's getting down to is that there's a hermeneutic here in this text, even though it might be about a different subject, um, there's the same hermeneutic that you're going to approach, um, whatever this issue is going to bring up. And then you can take that same issue, maybe same principles and all that kind of say that same hermeneutic and apply it over here to another issue. Because if you have to keep on dodging, that means you have a disjointed worldview just as bad as the person you're trying to talk to. And, yeah. you know, Christianity, as Cornelius Van Til says, you know, it's a system. So, you know, there's there's it's chain mail, um, but it, it's like like I've used the diamond thing. You know, you can look at a facet but then there's the whole diamond and you can't make sense of the one facet without the whole diamond and you can't make a sense of the whole diamond without all its facets together. So they all sort of work together. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that with some language um, that's been on the podcast before. This is what he's saying is that he's got a hermeneutic there. There's a hermeneutical thing that you see in this passage um, that will help you um, get into other topics. So yeah, carry on. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that clarification. So um, what, what people are doing when they make this accusation or this allegation is they're, they're essentially accusing Christianity of being bigoted, yeah. bigoted, meaning, uh, unfair, prejudicial. Yeah. Okay. Now the ironic thing here is that let's say you, you can imagine a, a Christian counseling, a person who is uh, wrestling with same sex attraction. Um, and that, and, and let's say that this is a pastor who is counseling this person and helping them come out of the gay lifestyle. That's a good thing. That's 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 a liberating thing to help someone, um, to to help someone walk in a more a close fashion with Christ and to uh, set aside sin to mortify sin. That's a very good thing. And yet, it's that very thing that that very act of helping a person which is going to get that pastor accused of bigotry, which bigotry actually is sinful. bigotry is is unfair judgment prejudicial judgment so the very act of kindness and goodness is being used as an opportunity to accuse christians of evil of sin so now that we've sort of set that stage now we we have the um now we have a lens through which we can look at this passage in matthew 12 because that is the exact thing that happens to jesus jesus does something good jesus liberates someone from spiritual oppression and it's that very act that has jesus accused of evil so it's very very similar again it's not one-to-one but it's as you said it's the it's the hermeneutic that we're using so all right so let's let's um let's uh oh you know what real quick before i dive into the passage let me just explain the the method that i always teach my students um it's a presuppositional method of defending your faith. It's uh, it's uh, three steps. Step one is you perform a reductio ad absurdum on the unbiblical position. You mm-hmm. reduce it to absurdity. You do that by pushing it to its logical conclusions and saying, if you're going to start here, where does that lead? You're going to show that the presuppositions don't lead to the desired conclusions. And what you're doing there is you're revealing the inconsistency or the contradiction. You're pushing that antithesis. And 
after you've reduced it to absurdity, um, in, in other words, you've revealed that internal contradiction, and there always is an internal contradiction, then you're going to do an internal critique of the biblical position, of the Christian worldview. And you're going to say, now let's look at the biblical position. Does the, does the Bible have anything to say about this issue? What you're going to find out then is that the Bible not only, so the Bible provides the very categories that are needed for the objection. So someone is saying, hey, well, okay, we're going to, we're going to get into it. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. <laughs> um, but then not, not only does the Bible provide those categories, but the Bible also doesn't really fall prey to the accusation itself. So this is yeah. when you start to say, and, and um, this is what you're doing. You're acting like a home inspector. If you've ever bought a house, you know what a home inspector does. They go mm -hmm. down, they, they inspect the house and they look for, you know, they'll look outside at the siding and the windows. They'll go up to the attic and look, and they're looking for flaws. But one of the most important things a home inspector does is they go down into the basement and they examine the foundation. And I will never forget an experience that my wife and I had. We had this home inspector. We're looking for houses in the city of Chicago. And we found this one that was just beautiful. It was clean. It was um, well taken care of. And we walked down into the basement, which was, it was an unfinished basement. And our inspector, he's down there for five seconds. And he goes, you may not buy this house. I said, what are you talking about? It's beautiful. It's clean, well taken care of. He goes, no, look at this. And he shows us a crack running down the middle of the foundation and up the walls on either side. And he goes, this crack means that this house is seated on, it's situated on an uneven, it's basically on a little ridge. And over time, this crack is going to get bigger and this house is going to collapse. You may not buy this house. And guess what? We did not buy that house. We yeah. left and we were so grateful that we had a good home inspector to analyze the foundation and to show us that foundation could not support the house. Yeah. That is what you're doing in these first two steps. You're examining the foundation of the unbiblical position and you're saying this can't support the house. And then you're going down into the basement of the biblical worldview and you're saying, look at this. This is a foundation. This is solid. This is sturdy. The whole house can, can be supported. You can build as big of a house as you want on this foundation. And, um, it won't collapse. Okay. So that's step one and step two. And then step three, you're leading them to the cross. Yeah. You're, this is your evangelistic appeal. This is your call to repentance and faith. And look, it doesn't, not every apologetic encounter gets you that gives you that opportunity, but as much as you can, you want to lead them to that repentance and faith. What you're doing is you're saying, look, the same Bible that makes sense out of the very objection that you're accusing God of or Christianity of also says that your rejection of God is sinful and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I invite you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Mm. Okay, so that's the three steps. Mm. Now, how does Jesus do this in Matthew 12? Okay, here's what's going on. After this is sort of a, a summary of the passage. So Jesus heals a man who has been oppressed by a demon. He's freeing him from spiritual bondage. The Pharisees accuse him of operating by Satan's power. They say the only reason that he was able to do this is because he's working for Satan. Jesus exposes the absurdity of their position and turns the accusation around on them and then reveals his messianic identity and gives the Pharisees an ultimatum. It's all three steps that I just walked you through. Let's see how he does it. Yeah. Okay, look at verses 
22 and 23. Here's what it says. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now, little quick background here. Exorcisms, the casting out of demonic spirits, they were extremely rare in the Old Testament period, but they were not completely unheard of. I'll give you an example. King Saul had an evil spirit that would torment him, and David would play on his harp and would actually give Saul relief of the demon, of the of the unclean spirit or the evil spirit. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. Hmm. Now, by the time of the second temple period, this is the what we consider to be the time in which Jesus lived. So you could just say the era of Christ. Yeah. At that time, it was expected that the Messiah was going to be one who would exercise demons. Now, one of the names of the Messiah is the son of David. You can see that here in the passage. People are going, is this the son of David? David exercised, exorcised demons. It was expected then that the son of David would be able to do the same. Hmm. So uh, it was it was also prophesied by Isaiah that the Messiah would be able to heal blindness and heal deafness. Isaiah 29, 18, and Isaiah 35, 5 are where you can find those specific prophecies. So here comes Jesus. He casts out a demon like David, and he specifically heals of blindness and deafness. This is exactly why his audience was saying, is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? He's doing the things that we've been waiting for someone to do. So it's very clear that Jesus has power over these demons. Now, how could this be? This is the question. Jesus doesn't let anyone be neutral towards him. You guys know this. Oh, yes. There's There's no no neutrality. There's no neutrality. Another rule right there. Another rule. That's right. So there's two responses. You've got some people who are going, "This this is him. This is the Messiah. But the Pharisees rush in to provide their fake news interpretation, their sinister explanation of what's going on. And you can read about that in verse 24. Here's what it says. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So there's their interpretation. Now, Beelzebul, what does that mean? Beelzebul is a name derived from Baal. Baal, you can kind of hear it. Baal, Beel. It's the same name. And Beelzebul specifically means, well, the word Baal means master or Lord, and Beelzebul means master of the house. That's important. That's going to come up later in this passage. He's the Lord of the house. And by the time of Jesus, it was well understood in Jewish culture that Beelzebul was another name for Satan. Baal is Satan. Beelzebul is Satan. So they're saying Beelzebul, you can read that and you can hear Satan, but it's very interesting that he's called Beelzebul because that's going to come up later in the passage. So God doesn't waste anything in scripture. I know we know this. Yeah. Okay. So um, now why do they make this accusation? One, because they don't want to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, but they're also accusing Jesus of practicing satanic demonic magic. Yeah. That was a capital offense. Even here, they are trying to get Jesus killed. They're trying to pin a charge of sorcery on Jesus. You know what's incredible? That charge of sorcery 
actually stuck within the pharisaical community in the following decades. Even after the, the, um, the time of Jesus, there were extra biblical documents that referred to Jesus as a sorcerer. Hmm. Hmm. So in other words, the Pharisee started this rumor about Jesus that he used black magic and that stuck. Again, there's no neutrality. You either accept Jesus as Lord or you condemn him as a sorcerer. And again, this was a capital defense, a uh, capital offense. So the question here is, is Jesus actually evil? Is he doing good in pursuit of evil? That's the apologetic challenge that's that we can draw out of this story. Yeah. Um, and then the story continues there in verses 25 through 29. Here's what it says. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, oh, this is so good. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Hmm. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Okay, what is Jesus doing here? He's giving us step one of this three-step apologetic method. Uh, he, start, he starts by stating a principle that they're going to agree with. Every yeah. kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. No city, no house divided against itself can stand. That's pretty hard to disagree with. What are they going to say? No, houses <laughs> can stand if they're divided. I mean, he's putting them in such a corner. Here. Unless if they want to actually be consistent, which, you know, some people in, uh, in, in uh, conversations, you know, when you're looking at their eyes, when they're saying it, that they're not saying that um, really um, intellectually. Right. But they know that they're caught and they'll just be, Oh yeah. 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 That's, yeah you know, they're willing true. to go to the logical conclusion and say that they're okay with it. Um, and we see, you know, Jeff Durbin is, has a lot of exposure on a lot of conversations like that. And he'll just look them straight in the eye. Like, you don't know, you're just saying that to try right. to be consistent, but you don't. And then it's still, he still deals with it, but you know, but that's what's going on is that, you know, there is an agreement. They understand um, um, that the, you know, a kingdom divided, right? Like they have a divided kingdom and they're so, trying to look for unity. Right. So that's also part of the mix is you've got a divided kingdom. You do have a temple that's built um, at this time, but there's still no unity and they're looking for the kingdom. They're looking for a king and they're looking for a unite, uh, uniting factor here, right? And so, you know, there's a lot more tension going on um, historically here. But So Joel, without getting you too far off of this and applying it to the reality that so many of your eighth through 12th grade students are running into, regarding the LGBTQ plus IA group, um, when you think about it like that, our component in dealing with those individuals is to simply say, yeah, bigotry is bad. Doing hateful things is evil. Is, is that the correct step that you would apply here in, in regard to the application of this text to that issue, which you said they're not the same issue, but the mm -hmm. pattern is similar? Is that kind of how you make that connection there? Yeah, what I would do is I would, that's a great question. I would take it up a level and say, look, 
what you're accusing Christianity of is being bigoted. Maybe it's you're accusing God. Maybe you're saying Christians, whatever you're saying. Christianity is bigoted. Uh, look, what, what do you believe then? Do you believe that bigotry and unfair judgments are wrong? Yeah. That's good. Do you believe that people have the right not to be treated unfairly? That's good. Where does that right come from? And so at the, at the end, as after I walk through the passage, I want to come back to that and okay. lay out specifically how to walk through it using the same three steps that Jesus did. Good, good, yeah. good. Yeah. But that's no, a great question. It's a great question. So, um, okay. So Jesus is, uh, he's stating this principle and he's pushing them to the inevitable conclusion of where their arguments will lead. And, and, uh, He's actually going to show that they are condemning themselves by their own reasoning. Oh, it's just yeah, yeah. brilliant. Just brilliant. So what Jesus does is based on this principle, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus exposes this, this absurdity. He's saying, look, if I'm driving out demons by Satan, then Satan would literally be working against himself. Is that what you're saying? Are you accusing Satan of working against himself? Because that's absurd. That's, that would be asinine. Your whole point here, the whole point of the Pharisees is that Jesus is working for Satan and Satan is deviously trying to worm his way into these people's lives. Mm-hmm. That's not, they're, what they're saying is Satan is mischievous and very crafty like a serpent and look at how crafty he's being. Okay, but at the same time, they're accusing Satan of working against Satan, which is the opposite of crafty. It's, it's dundering and foolish. So, okay, is Satan nefarious and wily or is he a bumbling idiot working against himself because he can't have it both ways pharisees your acute your argumentation is leading to this absurd position that satan is about to destroy himself and that satan is so wily and crafty that he's duping everyone that's absurd you're you're arguing out of both sides of your mouth and and by the way by the way if this is how we cast out demons by the power of beelzebul don't your own disciples cast out demons huh are they operating on the on the basis of Satan as well? Satan's power? Are they practicing black magic as well? Did you think about that? So, yeah. And then so, it's by by what standard if they would say, well, ours are totally fine. Then you go, well, by right. what standard right. can right. you judge my works versus their works? And then that's going right. to take you back to scripture. And then he's going to be able to prove himself from the scriptures like you did. Right. <laughs> you know, it's hanging exactly. out there. But yeah, yeah, that's, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. And I'm hoping that people are getting a lot because this is, you know, this is Jesus in action. And it's not just this place, but this is a very wonderful, wonderful place. And so I'm just sitting back. So you keep on going. Like you got the show. Cool, cool. So now we come to verses 28 and 29. Here's what it says. But if... Okay. Uh, you know what? I already read this. Uh, but if, oh no, no, I didn't. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Oh no, I did read this, but I'll read it again. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now I love this passage. I love preaching through this passage. So um, Jesus has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You can read about that. Now you actually flip a couple pages back to Matthew chapter three, and that's where you Mm -hmm. read about Jesus has been anointed with the power of, with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not operating in the power of Satan. Jesus is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of operating by Satan's power. They're basically 
blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which oh, yeah. is very dangerous. You do not want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls that the unforgivable sin. Mm-hmm. So, they're, so they're, um, they're saying, oh, and, and not only that, but now this is really interesting too. Shortly after being anointed by the Holy Spirit, Jesus had actually been tempted by Satan and had overcome Satan. You read about that in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And how did he do it? By resisting Satan. Corroborate that with James 4, 7 that says, if you resist Satan, he will flee from you. That's exactly what Jesus does. So Jesus is not operating in the power of, of, um, of Satan or Beelzebul. And, and the readers of the gospel know this. This isn't like a mystery to people reading this because before, before Matthew 12 comes Matthew 3 and 4. So they know Jesus is operating in God's power. There's no mystery here. So, uh, you know, we have this bird's eye view that the Pharisees don't have, and we can go, ha, Pharisees, please. He already beat Satan. Okay. He already, he already won. And now, uh, now this reveals, or now Jesus is revealing his true identity. Okay. So now we're going to step two of the process. He's reduced their their position to absurdity. Now he's going to internally critique the biblical position. He's going to put forward the truth. And here's what he says. He says, um, hey, you know how Beelzebul is the Lord of the house? He's the master of the house. Okay. He has this domain. That's what Beelzebul means. Well, imagine a strong man. Imagine a master who has captives in his house. And he's keeping them bound. I'm taking a little bit of uh, sanctified imagination to this passage, okay? But um, imagine a strong man who in his house, he's got people bound and gagged, and they cannot escape. And this master of the house is strong. In fact, mm-hmm. let's call him the strong man. Okay, so Satan, Beelzebul, strong man, same, same guy, same person. What is the only way you're going to set those people free? Do you just traipse into the house and start untying people? Absolutely not. He's a strong man. He will throw you out. He'll beat you up. Maybe he'll bind you up. You can't just waltz into a strong man's house unless you yourself are stronger than the strong man and you can go into his house and tie him up and bind him up and overpower him. Then you can go in and take what had previously belonged to him. You can set the captives free. Well, that is exactly who Jesus is claiming to be. By telling this story, he's saying, look, not only am I not working for Satan, but I'm actually stronger than the strong man. The house has a new master. The house has a new Lord. You think Beelzebul is the Lord of the house? Guess what? I'm the Lord of the house. Yeah. I'm the master. And I am capable of going in to Beelzebul's house tying him up and then making him watch while I go in and set his captives free. That's exactly what Jesus has been doing. He healed the blind and deaf man from the demon. He set the captive free. He went into the strong man's house and, and he's not binding Satan in this moment. When did he bind Satan? He bound Satan when he came, resisted Satan and overcame him. Now Jesus is free operating in the power of the Holy spirit, God in flesh operating in the power of God, the spirit. God, the son and God, the spirit. Okay. Yeah. Obviously they're going to work together. Mm-hmm. Now Jesus is free to traipse around, to walk around the strong man's domain and to set free whomever he desires. Jesus is saying, um, your way is absurd. Let me tell you about my way. 
my my truth, which they don't. He doesn't mean it the way subjectivists mean. It's yeah. his truth is true, and Jesus has. Um, remember, there's only two options: either Jesus is working for Satan, or Jesus is the son of David. Well, the idea that Jesus is working for Satan is absurd. Jesus must be the son of David. He must be the stronger man. He must be the Messiah. That's what he's saying. And so um, it's just it's just a absolute masterful uh, rhetorical turn here. Jesus is is proving himself to be the greatest apologist that ever lived. Yeah, <laughs> which goes without saying. But um, but now we move to step three. And that comes in verse 30. Here's what he says. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, then he goes on. Hmm. But Jesus is giving them an ultimatum. He says, look, there is no neutrality towards me. You either accept me as the Messiah, where you condemn me as Satan. And I've already shown you, you can't do that. That's absurd. So if you want to be absurd and you want to just be completely given over to your absurdity, hey, have at it. But understand that that's, I've just shown you that that's a foolish way of going. So if you want to be publicly foolish and essentially side with the, with Beelzebul yourself, have at it. But the other alternative is to repent and receive me and believe in me as I actually am, the son of David, the Messiah, who is the new master of the house, who came to set the captives free. And in other words, repent and believe the gospel. Mm -hmm. So there's step one, step two, and step three. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. So that's a, you know, like there's there's many different ways to kind of express the same thing. So I mean, if you go into our catalog where we've talked about um, the process before, I mean, he's not bringing... Um, anything new per se, but we've put um, Christ's flesh on it. And it's a wonderful thing because that is a, a great passage because that's a scary passage to a lot of people because they, you know, they, they look at it and say, oh, the impartable sin have I created? And they're, they're so stuck on that whenever it's like, no, 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 just read, read the context. It's, it's even better. It's, it's awesome. And it's freeing, right. you know, um, so you don't have to be bound by eisegesis um, and, and fear, but you can actually be set free um, in many ways uh, from that. But even this, the apologetical methodology, just looking at Jesus, how he, how he did that. So, you know, it's like, he's, he's answering them, but he's kind of like, nah, you know, it's just like that, that, you know, everything that the presuppositionalist gets uh, hit for by the world happened to Jesus right there. So again, yeah. like, and so if they get mad at Jesus, you know, that's okay. And if they get mad at you for doing the same thing, that's okay. Right. That, Cause you're on Christ's side. So, uh, stay, you know, stay there. So, but yeah, thank you for that wonderful exegesis and, um, you know, just bring that in. So we do have the three steps. So, uh, step one, reduce them to absurdity, right? Yep. And then reduce step two, absurdity. Yep. step two, do an internal critique of the biblical position. Show that, mm -hmm. that, that beautiful diamond of biblical truth, as you put it, yeah. is uh, solid and there's no flaws in it. And and you're not just tearing down the unbiblical worldview, but you're presenting the biblical worldview in all of its truth and power and beauty. And that's what Jesus does here. He goes, look, the reason why I can do this, I'm not just some guy. I'm not just a wizard. I'm not uh, just a spiritual guru. I'm I'm the one you've been waiting for. Because the big question on the table is, is this the 
son of David? Is this the Messiah? And Jesus, without saying it, says it more clearly than he could have said it by just, you know, saying it. He's he's proving himself to be that. So then, yeah. Joel, help us out here real quick. We want to return back to the way you apply this to the mm. LGBTQ plus position and how you interact with those who are atheist, agnostics, and antagonistic towards the Christian faith in regard to the LGBTQIA plus agenda. Okay, so first let me just preface this because nowadays you you well you should always you should always come with this mentality. When we're defending our faith, we want to do it with gentleness and reverence or respect. Okay, so gentleness towards the person, respect towards the person, also reverence towards God. And when we're, and I always tell my students this, when you're engaging in apologetics, your goal is not merely to win the argument. Your goal Amen. is to win over the person. Yeah. Can you save anyone? No, in your own strength, absolutely not. Only the Holy Spirit can take out a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. But let's not put any unnecessary obstacles in the way of someone on their way to Jesus. Amen. So we're dealing with real people. Oftentimes this objection is going to be coming from a very deeply personal place. We need to respect that. We need to acknowledge that. We're not here to bash someone over the head with the truth. We can do that. And I've done it myself all too often. Okay. We're also not here to show how intellectual we are. We don't need to do that. It's God's truth. that can stand on its own. Yeah. So there's, if we keep our eyes on Christ and keep our, our um, hearts aimed at compassion and gentleness and respect you really can't go wrong with that approach. So we want to be speaking the truth in love, which does not mean watering down the truth, but it does mean care and compassion towards the person we're speaking with. Okay. So having said that, the person who accuses God or Christians or the Bible or Christianity of being anti-LGBTQ, what they're really saying is, look, you are unfairly, prejudicially condemning people in an unjust way, in a way that is not fair. It's not right. How does that relate to this passage? Jesus was accused of working for Satan and evil in the midst of setting people free. So yeah. we're, when, if we come alongside someone and we say, look, same-sex attraction is something you need to mortify. Same-sex practice is something that you need to repent of and give up and, and turn to Jesus Christ. These are good things. If a person were to listen to that, just like any sin, if they give up their sin and come to Jesus, they will experience freedom. If the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed, according to Jesus. And, and so we're, we're doing something that's analogous to what Jesus did by bringing people uh, to freedom, freedom in Christ. Okay. And yet it's that very same thing that, that um, is used as an opportunity to call us bigots. So this is where we now say, okay, uh, specifically, we're being accused of being bigoted, biased without reason against what are perceived to be vulnerable groups, what, what some have called sexual minorities, okay, which we might say people who are following an unbiblical deviant sexual lifestyle. Okay, but they're coming from it from a perspective in which um, these aren't deviant lifestyles, unbiblical or uh, ungodly lifestyles. They're just as normal as you know anything else as um, yeah. a man and a woman. So how do we how do we handle this? Well, we can take it a step back, a step up, and we can say, so you believe 
that unfair judgments are wrong. Bigotry is wrong. So do I. And, and I, and I will say this, that is good because yeah. people have the right not to be treated in a bigoted prejudicial way. People have that right. I agree with you. Where do those rights come from? Mm-hmm. If those rights come from society, then whatever society does is right by definition. Well, that can't be because then a society that condemns LGBTQ people to death simply because they are in that camp, by definition, that would be right. Now, hear me. You have to really specify. I'm not saying that that's right. You are. If if morals come from society, then any society that says that is by definition right. Okay. So is that what you're arguing? No. Okay. So we need a different standard. Well, could, could the standard be your own internal conscience, your own feelings, your moral feelings? In other words, you just know that it's wrong to be bigoted. Okay. Here's, here would be a follow-up question then. Why should, this is going to sound harsh, but I say it respectfully. Why should anyone else care about your moral feelings? Mm -hmm. As Jeff Durbin says, so what? Mm -hmm. Now you might feel that way and I might feel that way, but what if, unless we are God, why should the whole world care about our feelings about right and wrong? Quite honestly, they shouldn't. As a matter of fact, your feelings are no better than my feelings. Now it just becomes a matter of who can assert their feelings over the other person. Now we're actually devolving into might makes right. Is that what you're arguing? No, it's not what I'm arguing. Okay. So I guess we need another standard. But at the very least, we can see if you take God out of the equation, you really don't have an absolute, unchanging, universal standard that applies to everyone for all time. And that's really what we need. If we're going to say bigotry is always wrong, we're really going to need a standard like that. But unfortunately, your unbelief, Mr. Unbeliever, can't provide that, can it? No, it really can't. Let me offer you a better way. Now, let me tell you about what the Bible teaches. Do you know that the Bible teaches that people are made in the image of God and as such actually have inherent rights? Do you know that in the Bible, it's actually very sinful to condemn someone prejudicially, to to be uh, partial towards people? Do you know that that's actually condemned? It's a violation of God's good moral character. And as a matter of fact, you know that verse that you love, judge not, lest ye be judged? Do you know where that comes from? It actually comes from Jesus. Jesus himself teaches us not to judge by appearances, but with right judgment. So bigotry is wrong. And for Christians, that comes straight from the top. That comes right from Lord Jesus. That wasn't invented by Paul or Peter. That comes from Jesus himself. So we may not, as Christians, prematurely judge anyone, especially because final judgment belongs to God. So what do we do as Christians? We have to discern good from evil in a non-prejudicial, non-bigoted way. But that means we've got to apply that standard, the standard of, of God's word, all the way. If bigotry is wrong, the same Bible that condemns bigotry also has something to say about sexual practices and activities. Yeah. It's the same Bible. You can't pick and choose because that would be inconsistent and prejudicial. And quite honestly, that would be bigoted. And we don't want to be bigoted, right? So we need to apply the same standard all the way down the line because that standard comes from God. And guess what? The same biblical standard that tells me that bigotry is wrong also presents sexuality as being 
between a man and a woman, right sexuality being between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship of marriage for life. So you really can't avoid that norm. Now, does that, does that mean that we go around throwing rocks at people who have same-sex attraction? No, that's not what that means at all. But it does mean that we have to be able to judge between truth and error, between right and wrong, between morality and immorality, between good and evil. Now, I'm going to take this one step further because that same Bible that condemns homosexuality, that condemns transgenderism and bisexuality, also condemns every other sin. Now, this is where we run into some problems because you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, even on our best day, don't live up to God's standard. Remember, the standard has to come from God. We've already seen that it can't come from anywhere else. And yet that means that all of our sin needs to be brought before God. And we've got a lot of it. We don't, I don't know if you're like me, but I don't even live up to my own standard every day. Mm. What I think mm -hmm. people should do, let alone when I open up my Bible and I see what God says I should do. You know what the Bible says about sin? Disobeying God, by the way, is called sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You heard of hell? That's the wages of sin. Nobody wants to go there. So how do we escape it? Well, that same Bible also tells us, in fact, in the same verse, that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the question is, are you going to condemn Jesus as being bigoted, which you've now seen you can't do, or are you going to receive him as Lord and as Savior and receive eternal life from him and let him be the Lord of your life? That's the option in front of you. Jesus himself does not give you the option of neutrality. And you've already seen that the other way doesn't work. The only option that makes sense facing you is to repent, turn from your sin, believe in Jesus. Does that make sense? Are you ready to do that today? Yeah. Yeah. And so again, like the, the, the beauty of this method is uh, again, it's not rooted in intellectual prowess um, and it gets, it doesn't get lost in the weeds. It gets you straight to the heart of the gospel. The fact that, you know, the gospel presupposes um, the law, no, if you you can't live up to the law, and uh, you know it's wonderful, um, just talk about Matthew five today. You know, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. But how can your righteousness actually? That should that's the question. Then how can I, how can I be that righteous? It's like in Christ, the one that's speaking speaking that sermon on the mount. You know, he's he's the one that ended up. Uh, you know, so that's staying in Matthew here. You know, that's that's where we get our righteousness from. So you know, the apologetical methodology. Um, should be the one that gets you to the gospel the quickest instead of, you know, well, you know, yeah, because here's the deal. Okay. So the, the old Testament had given them, this is what, this is what Messiah is going to look like. Right. And so even Paul or not Paul, whenever John was in jail and he asked, is this, is, is this Jesus or, or is there another Jesus? Is, am I looking for another? And then Jesus, what does he say? Jesus does go, well, you've seen the evidence, right? You know, people are, being um, cleansed of their demons, they've been healed, the blind see, the deaf hear, right? Those are evidences, right? Those are given evidence. I mean, you can't really make sense that that should be evidence without special revelation coming down anyway. So sorry, evidentialists, that's not biblical, right? But, you know, so that's that's the other things that come in, like the, they were looking at the evidence. They had special revelation to tell them this is what the Messiah is going to look like. And guess what? Because of their depraved hearts, it doesn't matter what the evidence is. That's right. And right they on. they knew that why why are they even asking if it was the son of David? Because we know what God said, but we just don't want it to be this guy. We don't like this guy. So it's an ethical issue. 
And so this is going to come up every time that we talk to, um, you know, SES guys, whatever, whenever we have that conversation, maybe with Adam Tucker or Ryan or, or, uh, or, uh, Oh, how Richard, how again, or something like that, you know, we're going to have to keep on grounding and pounding. It's an ethical issue. We all know we're already responding and it's Christ that sets us free. And what do we have to be set free from? So thank you again, um, for that wonderful, um, methodology, uh, the similar hermeneutic that can go into any conversation and just get to that, that root issue, which goes, it, it puts the person instead of God on, on the dock and us being the uh, person asking him questions, it puts us in our place in that seat to be asked the questions. Are we righteous? How can we make rules? Like are our rules righteous? Can we live even by, like you said, I don't even live to my own standard. Yeah. We make standards for ourselves and we can't even, we can't even do it right for ourselves. And that's why there's so many diet plans. How about that? Something simple and trivial like that. We can't live up to. So, you know, just thank you uh, for all that hard work. Thank you uh, for this wonderful presentation. Um, yeah, Joel, I, I yeah. really appreciate the way you've done that. I have not seen anyone do that in the way that you did. And I appreciate the way that you not only worked through the scripture to show the method, then you went back and walked us through a real world issue and provided an incredible piece. And I would encourage you, dear friends, those of you who watch the podcast, listen to it, to make sure that you are checking out the Think Institute. We'll make sure that we have a link to their website. Check out their podcast. You'll hear more great teaching from Joel. And you do have a few people that work with you on the Think Institute. Isn't that correct, Joel? We have some people who will write articles for us. Um, Excellent. And, uh, but primarily it's my wife and myself. And awesome. so she handles a lot of the ad administrative stuff. She leads uh, some women's Bible study type things. And uh, actually starting this fall, she's, she's officially becoming a conference speaker. She's going to be speaking at a uh, women's conference. And so whereas my primary attention is focused on dads and on men, on our podcast, The World, uh, Worldview Legacy, it's really designed for the Christian layman. That's really what I'm focusing on. My wife is focused on uh, on reaching the, all their wives, and so. Um, but within that, we we want to hit families, and we want to provide families the the resources that they need to be articulating and defending and sharing the Christian worldview. And you do have so, you do have some material that'll be coming out here in the near future. Uh, the material that you're putting together is for homeschoolers. Is that correct? You'll have it published. Uh, you have you already got a publisher on that? Tell us a little bit about that, real quick. I I want to oh, make yeah. sure I, I put a plug to this. I, I know you know you've come and you've given us a great teaching. One of the things that's always important to me is when I get good resources. Man, I'm the kind of guy who's looking at footnotes to see who people are quoting, but yeah. also I want to serve as a gatekeeper for other good resources. And so, tell us just a little bit about your upcoming publication, if you don't mind. And what you're hoping to achieve with that and, and how people can get their hands on it. Man, thank you so much. So the number one thing that I want to draw people's attention to is my podcast, which is called Worldview Legacy. That is the week by week instruction. Those are the resources that I'm putting out. My goal is that you can listen to an episode of, of Worldview Legacy and you can get something that you haven't been able to find anywhere else that specifically helps you become the worldview leader that your family and your church need. That is really what I'm laser focused on. Okay. But that being said, I do have some resources. So thank you so much for mentioning that. Um, the, the first resource is called Catechids. It's a catechism for young children, think toddlers, preschool, kindergarten, 
first grade, kind of at the older end. Um, I've brought my own kids through catechids three times, and um, we're currently going through it at the um, at our community group, which is like a small group, you know, family small group at our church. Um, but it's been it's been pretty popular, actually, by God's grace. Churches sometimes will use it for their Sunday schools. Some some people are buying it in bulk and handing it out to all their family members. Okay, why do I mention this? Because for for guys who are looking for a quick, easy resource, they've got five minutes in the morning before they go off to work and they want to disciple their kids. What can they use? Catechids is a resource for you. You can get it on my website, thethink.institute. Um, you can get a free PDF if you want, or you can get it on Amazon for like five bucks. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm not making any money at it. I just want to get the uh, the word out about, uh, you know, I want to get that resource in people's hands. Um, but what you mentioned was an upcoming project, which I am working on. I've been working on it all year. And that is my apologetics curriculum for eighth through 12th graders. And this is what I've been teaching in real time this school year. I've been developing it as I've been teaching it. And then kind of like beta testing, I guess the term would be where um, I get feedback back and I see how the lessons work on my actual students. I'm teaching it at a, at a local homeschool co-op, but what do I want to do with this? I have been talking with a publisher. I, I eventually want to get it published as a curriculum, but the last conversation I had with my prospective publisher, it's not locked in yet, is we're talking about maybe turning it into a textbook. That would be really interesting because then we'd be able to use it not just in not just for homeschool families, but we could expand into Christian schools, Christian classical schools, Christian online classical schools, Sunday schools could use it, uh, youth groups could use it. But eventually, what I'd like to have is a really versatile resource that lays out the the basic principles. It's just like what you guys do on Tag Your It. You lay out the principles, the rules, you know, Adam, I think you mentioned earlier, Hey, that's one of our rules. That's one of the rules. Yep. So I want to lay down the rules first mm -hmm. the principles and then give those, um, real world examples of here's how you answer this objection, that objection. I think we go through 15 different objections. Um, all, all things being said and done. It's uh, 27 different lessons and, um, God willing, I will have finished that up by this fall in time to roll out for the following school year. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of hoops we have to jump through to get there, but um, I do have a publisher that I've been talking with. I don't want to say who it is yet, but it's somebody you guys would know and um, your listener will, will know, but um, yeah, I don't want to like, I don't want to pull a King David and, and uh, count my chickens before they hatch kind of thing. Like you know, he did that sentence census and uh, God did not bless that. So I don't want to, get out ahead of my skis here but uh, i'll narrow it down it is not baptist and reform so out of all the uh publishers out there it is not <laughs> bnr right. even though right. you know if something falls through uh you know we've got baptist and reform have your you people know. call my people all right we're talking to you right now but we'll talk later <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good yes you you are your people and i'm my people that's true yeah yeah well dude thank you so much for your time and just uh you know it's one of those things that definitely put put uh your ministry on the prayer list um, cause there's a lot things, a lot of things that are coming up that would be really awesome. Um, cause you know, th this is the way that, uh, the, I guess the, the other apologetic, uh, methodology is already in the universities and everything, but wouldn't it be great to have a, uh, generation of kids, uh, grow up to go, well, we need to 
we need to defend the gospel with the gospel. You know, this is, yeah. this is uh Charles Spurgeon, you know, a lot of people uh, get that uh, sort of thing confused that, you know, you just kind of hyper Calvinistically just sit in a pew and just uncage the lion and let it do it itself. You do nothing. And it's like, no, right. no, you, we don't check our brains at the door, but we have faith. And so, yeah. you know, it's bridging the gap between we, we put faith in the right place, reason in the right place, and then uh, know how, Jesus has called us to action um, in the time now, um, and that's presuppositional apologetics, so, covenantal apologetics. And so, it'd be really awesome if a kids, if kids, if a ton of kids grow up, and then they end up going to these universities that are full of Thomists, and go, "We don't want that. Right. Uh, we we want we want better training than that." And then uh, that's how you reform your seminaries. <laughs> you start with them kids. So, but yeah, but it'll be because of stuff like this. So, you know, put uh, again, it's a worldview legacy podcast, the think the think dot Institute um, to get a hold of uh, more of his information and materials. Um, so please check that out. And so we hope that this maybe starts some sort of cool relationship, maybe tag your it, you know, if you guys, if you need anything from tag your it, we are here, we are available and uh, to get stuff out, to do something. So, you know, awesome. you just let us know and uh, you know, we will see where we can uh, plug our, our skills and whatever we do. And uh, we are more than uh, willing. So to somehow make a good connection between Tagurit and uh, the Think Institute. So, but yeah, thank Love you for it. your time. Love it. Thank you. Thank yeah. you guys so much. It's Joel, really, really, really appreciate you coming on brother. Uh, if it's okay, I'm going to send you a writing project that I've been working on. It won't be super long, but it's a little booklet. I uh, would love to get your thoughts on it. Uh, it is going to be published through our publishing arm, which is Baptist and Reformed. Uh, Baptist and Reformed. Uh, it is called Make America Prophesy Again, and you'll get to read a little bit about my position on cessationism, and I think you'll enjoy it. Love to get your endorsement for it if you get a chance to read it. It'd be cool. Love to, yeah, to get your thoughts on it, even if you wouldn't endorse it. I'd love to hear your reflections. So I'll email it to you. I know you're a busy guy, but it won't take you super long to read. That's it. That's not the goal. The goal is for it to be accessible to the the layperson. Love so, to read it, man. Send it over for sure. We'll do. I really will. Well, thank, thank you. you so much, brother. We're going to get you out of here on time, just like we said. That's so, right. Adam, so with that said, this is the Tag Your It podcast. I'm Ray Ray. And I am David Van Bever. I'm Joel Sedicates. And Soli. Deo. Gloria. <laughs>